Welcome to another special edition of the ACG Analytics Podcast. This is David Metzner, Managing Partner of ACG Analytics. The following podcast is a lightly edited version of a policy call we held. We will now proceed with the call. This is David Metzner, the Managing Partner of ACG Analytics. Welcome to our weekly macro phone call. This follows our macro note that comes out every Tuesday morning. If you're not receiving it, please reach out to research at acg-analytics.com to follow us on Twitter for more timely insights. Today's call will be chaired and led by Chris Zerwinski, our senior policy analyst, our special advisor, Bart Oosterveld, who joined ACG Analytics from the Atlantic Council. Also on the phone today is John East our head of research. With that note, I'd like to turn it over to Chris. There's a lot to talk about today. Thanks, David, and thanks, everybody, for joining us again today. As always, I I think that news out of Washington, D.C. is the place that I like to start, close to home. And last week, we saw a $3 trillion, another relief package, the um, Health and Economic Recovery Omnibus Emergency Solutions Package. It's a mouthful, but we'll call it the HEROES Act for our purposes. We saw the House pass a $3 trillion bill that includes, among other things, money for state governments, local governments, healthcare-related funding, housing assistance, money for broadband infrastructure. The question is, will this bill actually become law, or is it just a a Democratic wish list? John, I want to ask you that question, and uh, maybe you can fill us in on a little bit of the calculus from Senate Republicans in the White House. Well, there are two major things going on. The first is that Democrats know what they want, and this is their list. This is not the bill that will become law, but some portions of it could be negotiated and could become law. The second thing that's going on is that Republicans don't know what they want, and they want to wait until we have fully expended or almost fully expended the stimulus that we've already put in the pipeline, and then take an assessment of where we are and what has to happen. Right now, Republicans are debating different ways of structuring benefits, So, because there's a lot of concern on the Republican side that a lot of people are earning more money with the enhanced unemployment benefits and also the stimulus checks that went out than they would otherwise have received working. I think the Chicago Fed did a survey and estimated it's about 68% of people. Republicans really don't like that, but that's a, that's a sticking point with Democrats. And there are a number of different proposals that are being discussed, but it's unclear what's going to make it into a final bill. We basically have until June or July to make the calculus. What do you think factors into that? What else do you think could force Republicans' hands to move a little bit quicker on passing some sort of bill? For example, in the past, funding strains on the PPP and other Fed Treasury programs has precipitated more legislation. But it seems like because those funding strains are decreasing right now, that pressure point is not necessarily as strong as it was. Well, there are still some deadlines. The unemployment benefits, the enhanced ones, run out at the end of July. There are problems with the PPP program for some industries, so there is a desire in both chambers to retailer some of the requirements. Some of that could be retroactive, but a lot of employers, about a third of people who took loans, returned them because they weren't sure that they could make payroll or they were otherwise foul-breathed in the press because they were larger companies. The deadlines surrounding the payroll protection program requirement that you get 90% of your payroll back up and working by the end of June is maybe not realistic, and then you have the enhanced unemployment benefits running out. We're we're talking about a, a separate relief package here that would be driven out of Congress, obviously, but there are some things 
things that the administration is going to do from the executive to try to stimulate economic growth. Uh, we saw a week ago that there was this deregulatory executive order out of the White House. You know, people were talking about it as if uh, the, the main point of it is to make permanent some of these changes that have come out of federal agencies during the COVID crisis. Is that actually something that is material here, or is that kind of a, a PR point for the White House? To me, this was a rose garden executive order where you have a press conference, you roll it out, it's public relations. Every agency has the exact same power it had the day before the executive order came out. But it is the president signaling to all of the regulatory agencies that he's expecting them to come up with deregulatory ideas. And so basically what we do now is we sit and we wait and we watch and we see that the Department of Transportation is interested in loosening X types of rules or like the ETA he has identified this desire to push further deregulatory efforts. Now we kind of just wait and see where it comes from, right? Yes. There are going to be efforts at the FDA. The, the banking regulators have already announced some relaxed examination standards, capital standards of their own. So this is putting an exclamation point on what the administration has been arguing since President Trump took office. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, John, for, for some of that insight there. I want to move over to China now with the legislative angle to start. We continue to see a deterioration of the, the bilateral relationship China and the United States, and it's been a gradual deterioration. A lot of the little things that are continuing to rack up, though, and put pressure on the relationship are coming out of Congress. Just yesterday, we saw the Holding Foreign Account of Companies Accountable Act passed out of the Senate by unanimous consent, which essentially will require Chinese companies to submit an audit if they want to continue to be listed on a U.S. exchange. That is getting a lot of interest right now, John. And I'm curious, just because it passed out of the Senate with unanimous consent, does that mean that the House is going to take it up? And if they do, is that something that the president himself is likely to sign? You know, that, that's hard to say. I'm working from the assumption that this is sort of like the term limit uh, constitutional amendment that was a centerpiece of the Republican Revolution. And why do I say that? There were three different amendments that the Speaker at the time, Gingrich, put up to a vote, and all of them failed to gain the requisite majority. But every member of Congress could go back home and say they voted for term limits. That's what I'm looking at here. Certainly, this issue is bipartisan. The SEC and the PCAOB, the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board that was started under Sarbanes-Oxley, which is under the SEC, both of those agencies have complained since the Obama administration about the quality and access to auditing uh, accounting mm -hmm. standards and, and supporting documents coming out of China. This is not a partisan issue. The bill that came out of Congress was a voice vote, so no one's really on the record, but no one objected. So that's unanimous and bipartisan. There uh, was an effort in the House, a bipartisan effort in the House, an interest today. But there are other bills that you can pass to signal to China that the United States really needs you to come to the table now and help negotiate an end to the impasse of this long-standing issue. People want to pull the lever because they're afraid of what China would do to U.S. companies in retaliation. Exactly. And so the point there is that the president, if he were to have this bill on his desk, would likely be forced to sign it. That's it's really that would be a very tough bill for him to say no to. And if he were to sign it, then it sets us on this other path with China, right? It, it does. It, it'd be hard for the administration not to support it. They'd voice some support for similar measures that that uh, Senator Rubio had been pushing. The, what makes this odd is usually bills like this come out of the House and then the Senate doesn't act. But
But here, it puts Speaker Pelosi and others in a position where, especially if former Vice President Biden starts trying to talk tough on China, to show that they, too, have an agenda that deals with aspects of our bilateral relationship. And there are other bills out there right now, too, related to China. One of them is the Uyghur Human Rights Bill that's been passed by the Senate again and now is being reviewed by the House. But I think one interesting comment that Trump made recently, he, he has acknowledged the fact that if Chinese companies were to delist, then we'd just be losing out on business, too, because they're just going to go to another competitive exchange. But Outside of that, outside of the legislative angle here, the administration has been pretty busy trying to limit China's influence in the U.S. telecommunications infrastructure. Last week, we saw expanded export controls aimed to hamper Huawei's ability to do business in the United States. And at the same time, though, we saw that the United States extended Huawei's temporary general license, which which we expected. Now, what this has prompted us to you know to think about now is what's next. Right, because for a long time we were sitting here waiting on these export control rules. China also has been waiting and saying, if you all, being the United States, if you impose these rules, then we are going to retaliate. And so the question is, how do they do it and on what timeline? I think that that question, the answer to that question centers around China's unreliable entity list, which essentially gives them, if a, if a U.S. company, for example, is put on this list, it gives the Chinese government, these companies may basically face market access problems bans, restrictions, slowing regulatory permitting or licenses, and in some cases, Chinese companies are banned from even doing business with them. So I think that that is something that China is really looking at right now, who could conceivably be added to that. And David, you know, you, you've been mentioning who you believe would actually be more threatened by such an action. And I think that is that, is that somewhere, is that someone like Qualcomm, for example? The Chinese are masterful at using non-trade barriers to create trade barriers. The Chinese themselves, and some, you know, they have a, in their press have speculated that this is going to be bad for Cisco and Qualcomm. Although Cisco, well, they, the Chinese have kept Cisco waiting 12 months on an acquisition they'd like to do that's not large. Although what Cisco doesn't do a lot of business in China, thanks to Huawei's domination of, of that market. Many years ago, there was litigation over IP theft between Cisco and Huawei that was settled. Qualcomm, of course, does a lot of business in China and uh, sells its designs and its technologies essential to a number of Chinese telephony companies. But again, you know, what I look for is there's the blatant listing. There's also, you know, the inspection of imports that keep things in ports longer, banning of certain agricultural imports to safety issues. They can make things move much more slowly in a non-public, non-overt manner. They're you look at it, a gradual escalation, I think that will continue right up into the fall elections. But she's under pressure. He's getting criticized from some corners for being too aggressive and jeopardizing the U.S.-China relationship. The last pillar of the tent that's holding that relationship up really is the first phase trade agreement. I mean, Chris, what, how do you assess that? You can look at the phase one agreement as two, as two buckets, right? You've got the structural reforms that we've talked about on previous calls that, you know, they have put forward ideas for structural uh, intellectual property reforms. You know, for example, that's one thing. That's something that the U.S. really wanted. But at the same time, it's it's hard to ignore the fact that purchases are falling short. Now, we have seen some uptick in a couple agricultural products over the last couple months, and that's something that's positive. But, you know, if the Trump administration were to play this or up or down, basically, did they fulfill the agreement in terms of purchases or did they not? They would have to say that they have not fulfilled their purchases. Now, 
does that mean that that's how they're going to handle this? I don't think so. And you even saw, you know, National Economic Council Director Kudlow out last week saying that, that the phase one deal is not under threat. So, you know, that you, you get conflicting messages out of the administration depending upon who you listen to on this subject. Obviously, people like Peter Navarro are going to be far more hawkish. But I think that there is still an acknowledgement at the moment that the phase one deal is important and that we're not there yet, that we, the United States is ready to, to abandon it. So it's a tough thing because, again, they're not going to get there from the purchasing standpoint. The question is how the U.S. handles it. And I continue to think that, like you said, there are, there are ways that we are going to continue to poke them up until the presidential election and to make Trump continue to look very aggressive. So, you know, in order for them to reach their phase one commitments of $200 billion more than 2017, they'd have to be purchasing $20 billion a month for not doing that. Your imports of, of Australian coal are up 90%. Imports of U.S. coal are up 0.2%. Chris, I do think as long as they are purchasing more, that that is a glass half full. Might not be $20 billion, but it seems to be enough to keep the China hawks in the White House at bay. I would like to thank everyone for joining us today. I'd also like to thank our team of analysts for offering their unique insights. You can also follow us on Twitter for further insight into capital markets and the political economy. If you wish to reach out for more information, please email us at research at acg-analytics.com. Everyone have a good day. Thank you very much.